when we go to work, of course, it's about making great food and building a restaurant or building a whatever you're building for yourself. But at the end of it is building a community. And at the end of it, for me, it's like making a difference in someone's life. So whether it is someone who walks into the door and eats my food and says, wow, this is amazing or says it's shit, it's still like something that they will remember. Yo, 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 welcome to Brown People We Know, an interview show where we explore the non-traditional paths and shared experiences of the South Asian American diaspora. My guest this week is Surbi Sani. Surbi is a chef with over two decades of professional culinary experience. She served as the creative director at the Michelin-starred New York restaurants Davy and Tulsi, Currently, she's working her magic at Sar Bistro in Midtown, New York, but her impact extends far beyond just culinary delight. Serbi has served as a director for Sapna NYC and is the founder of Tagmo Treats, a small batch South Asian food company that has created mouth-watering dishes like achari mushrooms and mustard garlic kebabs on top of delectable mitai confections like pistachio, chocolate, and rose burfi. I just got hungry and I forgot what I was talking about. Oh yeah, on top of her culinary delights, Serbi has used her work at SUP9YC and Tagmo to train and employ immigrant women. It was incredible hearing about her passion for this work because Serbi started as a chef in an all-woman kitchen in Delhi. I got her thoughts on why we don't see more women in professional kitchens and she shared her story migrating to the US, visa issues and all. We also talked about her qualms with the coveted Michelin stars, the real process behind how chefs draw inspiration, and her cookbook recommendations, which I'll link to on brownpeoplewenow.com. I hope you have as much fun listening to this conversation as I had having it. Without further ado, Surbi Sani, welcome to Brown People We Know. Brown People We Know supports the Department of Health and Human Services COVID-19 We Can Do This education campaign to increase education and awareness about COVID-19 vaccines. Whether due to language barriers or lack of access to health care, many Asian Americans, Native Hawaiians, and Pacific Islanders face unique challenges to getting accurate vaccine information. We hope that amplifying these resources, especially in other languages, will help reach and protect our most vulnerable communities. Please visit vaccines.gov for more information. I was scrolling through your Instagram and I got really excited because I saw a picture of Maggie Noodles. Oh, wow. Okay. And I was like, this is my only opportunity to ask a Michelin chef how she prepares her Maggie Noodles because I feel like everyone has a different way. Oh, my God. Honest answer is I just love Maggie noodles. Actually, at one point, I wrote a story about Maggie noodles, which isn't published, but I'm hoping I can kind of reform it and get it published because I feel it's such a quintessential South Asian Indian, quote unquote, experience from your childhood days till you become a grown adult to like now my daughter even eating Maggie. In fact, like now we've stopped buying it because it is so bad for you (laughs) it's terrible 
I'm not someone who, if I have it in my cabinet, you know, certain people have it in their cabinet, they can just kind of resist it and like not eat it. I am not one of those people. If it's in my cabinet, I am going to make it and I'm going to eat it and it's going to be done. It's also like so important for your college life. And you know how like your younger days kind of stay with you forever, like forever young. <laughs> Anytime a song comes on, you're like, oh, my younger days, I ate so much Maggie and it never affected my weight. I guess it's one of those. For preparation, I do love my Maggie straightforward, just boiled water with that spice powder and Maggie. But if I am in a mood of spicing it up a little bit, doing something different. So I like to make a potato and egg one where I like would fry onions and ginger and then add potatoes into it and let it cook. And then I would half boil the Maggie and put it in there with the masala powder and like just kind of like scrambled. <gasps> so good. But also like just Maggie itself is amazing. They put like cocaine in it or something. <laughs> something. I swear, it's always like 11 p.m. I just walk into the pantry. I'm like, what do I want right now? Oh, just a whole bunch of carbs. <laughs> like, no big yes, deal. Serious. <laughs> or I think like there was, wasn't there a time a few years back where the government of India banned it and there was like thousands of packets of Maggie under like roller coaster, like well, not roller coaster, what are those like, they crushed all those bags and they destroyed them because of whatever pesticides that were there. And like there were, people were protesting <laughs> against this Maggie van because I mean, I know families where their kids eat nothing else but Maggie. I mean, how for a country that says that eat very healthy food, Maggie is the worst dependency of the country. <laughs> Why don't we dive into your career as a chef <laughs> since we've okay. already touched on Maggie? And I, I want to just start with your time in India. So can you take me back to that first restaurant that you worked in? So for me, my first experience in restaurant industry was more on the internships where I was doing internships and I wasn't doing it in the kitchen. So I'll start with the experience of when I actually started working full time because that's more relevant to what I'm doing today. So my first kitchen that I worked in was at the Maria Sheraton, New Delhi. And I went in for a job and at that time, there used to be these management training programs that had started and I wasn't sure what I was kind of doing even coming out of college. I was like, I want to do the kitchen, but I was a little bit, not scared, but like um, at that time I had, I was dating someone who was not very supportive of me joining the kitchens as a woman. Mm. And I guess I went against him and kind of decided I was going to do the kitchens anyways. And all of my college mates were in the same hotel and they were all in the management positions and I started at the very bottom because I hadn't I hadn't applied on time so I wasn't going to get like any kind of a better position I couldn't get into the management training programs because the interviews were all done they were actually at that time opening an all women's kitchen in Maria and so they brought me in they were like yes you can join in I wanted to do the bakery but they were opening a place called 28th grill so they gave me the 28th grill I remember I was very upset because I wanted to join the bakery section at that time. And I remember I told the executive chef that I don't want to go to the 28th Grill and I came here to join the bakery. He was like, well, you don't have to join us at all. Please leave. And I was like, oh, okay. No, I'm fine. <laughs> I'll take the job. 
So I started my career as what we call as a Kami 2, which is like, you know, so there's like Kami 3 and there's Kami 2 and then there's Kami 1 and then there's sous chef and things like that. Like that's how you go. So I was like right at the bottom somewhere. And it was an all women's kitchen, which I didn't expect, but I had the best time. Like I think it changed my mind about wanting to only do bakery because I so enjoyed cooking savory food. I was like, oh my God, this is so amazing. Why the hell did I want to join like a bakery section? I mean, grilling is so much more fun, just such high energy and you got to move so quickly. And after that, I've just never looked back. This kind of built on. I heard that you had aspirations to be an artist early on, but yes. it sounds like you had pivoted <laughs> successfully at that point. <laughs> Yeah, I wanted to do art like my dad. I think I had reasonable enough talent, but you know how in India, like, the kids are so talented, especially in the art field. They're just, they practice for a gazillion years, and by the time they hit the college and they go into these universities to sit down for tests, you got to be at a different level. And I was still, like, I was creative enough, but in my head, and, like, I hadn't, develop my skills enough had I chosen to just do art I'm sure that I would have done just fine it would have just taken longer not that it hasn't now but you know what I mean <laughs> yeah, yeah so I'm actually curious about this because you successfully pivoted from art into cooking and you were working at a nice restaurant marble floors and all of that <laughs> yes it, why did you decide to immigrate to the U.S. did you feel like there were better opportunities here as a chef or was it just because you wanted to move to the U.S. oh no I didn't want to move to U.S. ever I had all these American cousins and I just thought they were so full of shit <laughs> not I hope they'd never hear this podcast <laughs> But it's just like they were a little like, you know, up a tee up for me. And I just was like, I, I don't know if I really want to live in the United States of America. I wanted to much rather be in Europe or Australia or some of the other places. And I was applying everywhere. So I applied in Australia. I applied in UK. And then I got into this program at NYU, which was like a food studies program, which was like an anthropological sort of study of food. Rising as a woman in a in a kitchen in India was very difficult. The misogyny was just... Like, I thought I couldn't breathe anymore. Like, that's how how misogynistic the space could kind of be. Yeah. And I think that's across the border. I'm, I don't think hospitality is an exception to the rule. Like, I think it's everywhere. And I guess I also, like, wanted to learn more. And I didn't... Maybe I was in the wrong hotel, you know, like sometimes you kind of get placed in the wrong placements. And like, I did have some really good chefs at the Sheraton, but then I decided to move from there. Both of the women chefs were like fantastic and are doing really incredible work even now. So I adore them, Chef Manisha and Chef Madhu. And then I kind of went on to working for the Taj group and then went on to working for the Hilton group. So as I was kind of moving and like getting experiences, I just still felt like I needed to learn more and like be outside of the country to kind of see different things and I wanted to cook European food quote-unquote because it's colonial and it's cool and like you're like you're a French chef it's so much cooler than like you're an Indian chef but of course I come to the U.S. got into NYU started really thinking about food and like I was like oh my god I really don't know anything about Indian food I know so little and like whenever we would have these 
papers to write, which I didn't know to write at all because I was terrible at them and I didn't have really good grades, but I cleared and I got my master's <laughs> <laughs> at the end of it. I think it was a C minus or a C plus or something but like you passed. that. You passed. I passed. <laughs> I got it. I got two of my papers published well. <laughs> by the time I left, which is a lot more considering that I never had any academics behind me. It's totally different experience. Yeah. But I came here and like all I could think about was every time they would give us a topic to kind of research, all I wanted to do was research Indian food and then ended up like thinking about spices in food and really started thinking about cooking in general. And I was like, you know what? I really don't know anything about Indian food besides what I've cooked at home. Like and I had cooked since I was 10 or 11 years old. So I knew this deli pressure cooker, home style cooking. But beyond that, I really didn't have any ideas how the rest of it was being done. And the rest is history. Before we dive deeper into that, I'm curious just about the transition from India to here. Most of the challenges that we often hear about are like the visa challenges. Oh my God, yes. What were the challenges once you actually got here? Or, or was the visa the hard part? Oh, the visa was a very hard part. So... <clears throat> Uh, I cannot be uh, sent back to the country because I have my citizenship now. <laughs> <laughs> but when I arrived here, I arrived here in February and my session had already started in January. So I go to my professor in the college and I'm like, um, first of all, I was 30 minutes late, which is very normal for me. But like for US standards, <laughs> you have that 30 minute window. <laughs> If you're 30 minutes late, I remember I walked in and Jennifer Berg was my teacher at that time or like my counselor. And she was like, you're 30 minutes late. I have exactly five minutes for you. And I was like, holy shit. I was like, well, I'm here to like start the session. She's like, well, you're too late and you can't start the session because you're here in February. We started in January and there's no way you can keep up. So my suggestion would be you come back in fall and re-register. And I was like, okay, great. So then like... I'm at this point not thinking what's going to happen to my visa. I can't be in this country without having a legal status. And I'm like, great, I don't have any money, which I didn't, to pay to NYU. I didn't know how I was going to pay for NYU. My parents certainly were not going to pay for it. So I was like, okay, I'll work for the next eight, nine months, which is what I did. <laughs> without a work, work visa, I'm guessing. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and collected the money that I needed to collect and paid for the school. It got me through the first, I think, six months or eight months. Like I was working 24-7 because I knew I had to go to college. And this payment had to go from my pocket. And when I went back, I think eight months later, the next year, I wanted to travel and that's when I realized that, oh my God, I have overstayed my visa or something like that. And then thankfully at that time, I had an amazing lawyer who did an application for me to the government saying that I did not have this information and I was not informed by NYU, which is true. They never sent me a notification saying, if you're in the country, blah, 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 whatever. There were some rules around that. And that's how I got my status back. Otherwise, I would have worked out of status and like, yeah, would have been a different world. <laughs> Delhi has six lane roads. This is a really big city. I wonder if you could have come to any other city than New York. Was it a big culture shock? Oh, no, my God, no. There was no culture shock. 
I remember like getting to the New York and like I reached on a Friday, Saturday and Sunday where we were off. Monday, I was on the streets looking for a job. I went to all the Hilton hotels because that's the hotel I last worked at. Thinking, oh my God, Hilton, Delhi, Hilton, New York should be friends. <laughs> Doesn't work that way. Yeah. And I went to the Sheraton saying I have worked at the Sheraton in India, like trying to find some connections. In those days, there was no Facebook, right? There's no Instagram. There's no LinkedIn. There's no way of building that connection professionally. You've got to start from the scratch. You've got to hit the road. You've got to go knock on doors and find whatever you can. So then I got here and I remember on that Monday when I went looking for a job, I was walking down the street and on 5th Avenue by 57th or 58th Street. And I remember I put my arms out and I was like, I love New York. People were looking at me. She is crazy. <laughs> So I just fit in so quickly. I missed I missed my friends. I missed some of my family members. But other than that, like the initial first two, three years, I didn't miss anything else. Now, if you ask me, I miss India like I can't explain it. I would start crying like that's how much I miss India. It's different for me. I don't know. A lot of people come here and they're like, oh, I miss home. And I didn't miss home for the first five, six years. And that's when it hit me. Like, I just want to go home now. Yeah. Well, you were busy, right? Learning and cooking <laughs> and doing all these things. So you started at NYU. Can you talk to me about Krishnan Ray? He was teaching a class in one of the food history classes, he was an adjunct professor. And I wasn't like in his class, but I remember sneaking into his classes and just sitting through there. And then at that time, I was researching a paper. And I remember I used to go to the college and they would tell me to research a topic and I didn't know how to research even. Like I didn't even know how to find a book in the library. Like I'd never done this sort of work. I mean, hospitality and like cooking and like, Certainly, I can type in the computer to find a book, but you know what I mean? Like, how do you research actually? What are the tools that you need? I think my daughter, who's 18 now, has more research tools than I did at that age. You know, I had zero idea. And so at that time, there was nobody there that was from the South Asian descent, and I didn't... At NYU. At NYU in that particular department, or at even in my class, there was no Indians studying what I was studying like I was just like starting out on this and he was the other one that was there and so so I think like I went to him and I started talking to him and like he was really encouraging and very supportive of the work that I was doing my thought process was to kind of write either a paper on like Hindu Muslim rivalry and how that is reflected through the foodways and like how that is seen in the transformation of our cultural values, whether it is in media or it is in newspaper or it's in magazines and how like this sort of a communication becomes centering to our each of our cultural identity, whether it's Hindu or Muslim. The second paper that I did that the abstract kind of got published and one day maybe I can kind of get it fully published because it's an amazing paper where I kind of talked about uh, women identity and uh, you know how we make alpana and rangoli outside of our homes and a lot of the states they also fast they also have these rituals that are around this alpana 
So my whole idea was about making of these rituals through women and how rice being an important part of our lives, how that connects through us culturally and how by fasting, one of my other theories was that when women fast in a country or in a society where women don't have a lot of power, that when they fast for someone else, then that person becomes obligated towards them. And like they kind of end up having this larger dignified image in sort of an imagination than in reality. So it was something to that effect. And so he was really very supportive through that one paper. And like I was able to kind of finish it because he helped me through. So I adore Mr. I think it would have been so hard to research this stuff without someone like that there. There was nobody else there. And I remember like, I used to even not, I didn't have a computer. So I used to literally just sleep in the library with like a few underwears in my bag and like shower in the, shower in the, whatever the pool area was, and then go back to work. Cause I was either working or studying. Oh, <laughs> busy. That's what I said. You were busy. You didn't or have pa- time for this or, or partying every Saturday. Partying. You make time for that. <laughs> when you started talking about the paper at first, I thought you were going to throw back to the Maggie abstract. I was like, she's very no. serious about this paper. <laughs> Although I think like a paper on Maggie and how it has influenced the movement of how we are culturally eating now is huge. When it was introduced in the 80s, something like that didn't even exist. Nestle and all of these companies came in and like really changed the way India eats even now. They were the starting point for us. So I want to kind of get to now you, you're here, you, you finish school and you're cooking you grew up in India, so I imagine your palate is very different from the average American when you first get here. I'm curious like, if you had to make an adjustment to your cooking to cater to an American audience, or was it more of an advantage, the fact that you kind of grew up in India, you had a different palate, your cooking stands out in that way? Oh, I don't know how to answer that question. Look, as a chef, when you start cooking, anyways, there's a big movement that happens, right? Like there's a movement when you start using different ingredients. I don't know. It's like someone who paints for a lifetime, how they painted when they were 16 versus how they paint when they're 40 is like going to be different. I'm sure that there's certain amount of cultural habits that have kind of seeped in into the way I cook, but For the most part, I think, especially this last year, because I started all this regional home-style food with Tagmao, that I think I'm doing even more of how authentic can I be with my flavors? What's the balancing and why is that balancing happening in this region versus that region? And I always kind of talked about it in the last whatever, what, 20 years now that I've been cooking in America now. Honestly, in the last one year, like really just focusing on homestyle cooking and like trying to research like crazy, making crazy phone calls and talking to people at length and like really making smaller batches of thing and then multiplying it for like a hundred people. I've learned the transition of how do you multiply that? I, I want to say it in Hindi, wo ghar ka khana aap kaise banaoge? like how would you cook in such a it's such a different thought process when you're like making such a large batch versus when you're making for three people in your house in a small sort of a vessel. 
So I think definitely the cooking has changed, but I don't know if it has to do with necessarily being in America. I don't think I've ever let, I used to maybe at one point at Devi and other places still kind of think about, oh, I'm like catering to the American audience and like, I got to think more about the mainstream and like kind of come up with these ideas. Now I just don't care. I just cook whatever it is that I think I want to eat and I think you should try because I make it well. So you talked about making dishes authentically. I know at SAR you were creating like Bengali dishes and such. When you were learning those dishes, did they feel more familiar to you or was it as different as learning a French dish? No, it feels familiar because the spices are similar and like there are certain techniques that definitely overlap. But even so, like, for example, like this year I did quite a few weeks of Kashmiri food and it's been so amazing to do Kashmiri food. I'm crazy about it because it's so simple and like it has such few ingredients, but it's all about this slow cooking of ingredients and like just buying really good quality ingredients and really letting them sing in your pot, like really shifting my mind to think about if I had an aunt who was Kashmiri and she went to the store and she bought these ingredients and she was cooking this dish, how would she cook it? Like, it's a very different thought process from like, as a chef, I am making this food for that many people. And actually also like having more and more women in the kitchen with me has been an amazing blessing for me because they kind of get it. We've all kind of cooked at home in the same sort of space and we have, this, we have the same sort of attention to detail that sometimes, not all men chefs, of course, certain men chefs are very particular, so I'm not going to say that, but a lot of men chefs that are just generally cooks in Indian restaurants are not as careful. This is actually a good pivot because one of the questions I had for you is, when you started as a chef in Delhi, there were maybe like 30 female chefs in the entire city. Yeah. And that gender gap is something that has persisted, not just in India, but worldwide. I think it's like 70% of chefs are male, which is somewhat ironic because I think if we think of a home chef, we'll picture a woman. But if we think of like a professional chef, we'll picture a man. And so I'd like your take on why you think that gender gap exists. Oh, that's because there's a few reasons for it. One the chef profession is very long hours and sometimes even now taking care of the household becomes a very much a woman's job. Also this idea of hypermachism, as I call it, I'll give you an example. So one of the hotels, I'm not going to say which one I worked at, I was also opening a continental restaurant and like I am crazy about working on the grill. Like it's, I'm, I, I love it. I love the heat of it. I love getting burned. Not really, <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like I love the, the testosterone run that I kind of get by moving that quickly. And I remember I had to like really fight my way with the chef there being like, no, I am going to work the grill because I'm good at it. And he's like, well, you're a female. What if you get scarred? I was like, so what? So I feel like that sort of a mindset has still sort of persisted. There's also like thought process that, oh yeah, like males can do this sort of a very aggressive job better. And so like females maybe are not as successful. There's just so many males in the industry that 
having the doors and the road open for women is harder. I know that surviving in Delhi was not easy for me because I'm super sensitive. I'm like, I, I mean, I kind of became pretty aggressive and like they used to call me Chasi Kirani and all of that stuff. But like, you know, as a person, like I am a very sensitive person and I took it very personally and there was deep-seated misogyny all wherever you are, but then that's patriarchy and misogyny is a part of India, like, or over here too, right? We don't even think about it, but it's part of our lives. But I think more women are joining now. I don't know the status now in Delhi. I see a lot more younger women kind of being at least featured in, in magazines and newspapers and things like that. It's also that like the media doesn't come out in the support of women as well as much, right? Even in terms of James Beard Award or some of the other ones, like there's very few women that are selected. So it's a tougher space to be in. You also serve pro bono as the director for Sapna NYC or the Tiffin Project. And so you've been working to get more female immigrant chefs in the kitchen and on one hand, I'm hearing you talk about this kind of competitive environment that you're in, and I imagine it takes a lot of focus to build your own career in that space. So I'm curious what has been the driving factor behind you also taking the time to do this other work? Two reasons. I think economic freedom for any woman is freedom, no matter what. And if I can be a part of anyone else, any woman's economic freedom in any way, I will be blessed. Like that would be my payback to whatever tons of other females and supporters and family and friends have done for me. You know, I don't think I could have survived if I didn't have a community that I had built over the years. And also that is cliche and terrible, not terrible, as cliche as this is going to sound. If we don't do it or if I don't do it, then nobody will or Maybe I hire only three people. Maybe I will hire only one woman. But like that one woman is important for me. And like I would want her to be part of my journey. And I think in a big way, I guess maybe I have this romantic sort of idea that was built by my first job when I had all these women that were working with me that it just felt like family and we fought and we argued. But at the end of it, like we also kind of went out partying together. We shared things together. It was just a, I still talk to them, but I don't talk to them on a daily basis. But whenever I meet them, it feels like they're my family. They're my extended family. There's very few men that I can remember like that or none. I feel like when we go to work, uh, of course, it's about making great food and building a restaurant or building a whatever you're building for yourself. But at the end of it is building a community. And at the end of it, for me, it's like making a difference in someone's life. So whether it is someone who walks into the door and eats my food and says, wow, this is amazing or says it's shit. It's still like something that they will remember. Mm -hmm. And it's also part of like whoever is working with me. I guess when I die, they'll bring the leaves or roses or whichever flowers they want. I'm a little selfish that way. <laughs> I love this because it's you're using cooking as a vehicle for something else, right? Yeah, like at the end of it, if I'm able to build a community, like, you know what, like in another 15, 20 years, I'm going to retire, right? Like I want people calling me and asking me if I'm doing okay. And like, these are my people. This is my village. I will take them with me, you know? Was that the inspiration behind 
naming your sweets company Tagmo. And Tagmo means... Tigress. Tigress in Bhutanese. And I named it Tagmo. I was going back and forth about what I was going to call it. A lot of people have told me that I should name my company by my name, Serbi. It's a cool name. Don't get me wrong. I'm just not that narcissistic to call my company after <laughs> my name. Not that people that call it are narcissistic. It's great. It's just it's just not my personality. I just don't see a Serbi sweets like <laughs> splashed across the road anywhere. It almost rhymes a little too well. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh. Uh, and so I think uh, I had a dream. Like I was thinking of so many different names. And I had a dream where. I had this tigress, like I was in a forest and I was trying to get across the forest with my daughter and then kind of walking down the road, I see a tigress staring at me, she's going to attack me and then I realized that like she's actually looking at a prey. Long story short, before I woke up, the tigress was in, was in my lap and I was petting her and I was like, oh my God, this is so significant. I kind of looked up. I'm a little superstitious that way. I kind of looked up what is a tiger or a tigress in your dream because I dream animals a lot. Mm. And it was all about having your fears and conquering them and like just being able to kind of be able to jumpstart whatever it is that you're envisioning and that your vision is correct. And so I was like, wow, this is great. So like now that she's come to me, she's going to be part of my company. And so I decided I was going to call it something with a tigress. And I started looking up names. And in Hindi, a tigress is bargain, which can be a bargain. So then Tagmo was the closest one that I found that worked. So it's called Tagmo. Hmm. Has your day-to-day shifted a lot? Because what you were doing essentially was you were a creative director at these restaurants. And now you're running like a sweets or like a product company. So has your day-to-day shifted a lot since then? I think like even then I was managing multiple things. I'm also managing multiple things now. I'm also like as I'm getting older, I'm trying to find my strengths and kind of focus more on my strengths instead of trying to do everything. I'm also trying to find team members that I can be like, you guys take care of this. Like that's a new experience for me. At SAR and other places, I had teams, but it was a different team building process than here, where when I have a brand new person that like women that have not really worked in commercial kitchens and they come and work with me or like intern with me, it's a very different mindset. Like you have to be ready for their mindset. It's not the other way around. Like you have to teach them. Initially, it's a lot of handholding and then it's a lot of learning to trust them and letting go of the power of constantly trying to control everything. So it's a different, it's a different operation altogether. I also have, because I'm changing menus every week, just the amount of creative space I need, energy I need to kind of be able to work on the back end of what is it that I'm doing next? How do I do it? Like now we've started a women's series where this week we worked with the cookbook author, Monica Pede. Next month, we're hoping to work with Preeti Mistry, who's also a queer chef, if that happens. And then we're working with Barca Cardos as well. We're working with Caribbean chef, women chef. So like, we're just trying to build on not only talking about my work, which is great. Like I'm amazing. (laughs) But I think also like, providing spotlight to other people and like really bring in this energy so that all of these women become part of my village and are supportive towards me 
also I want to have a space where we're all kind of collaborating and doing different work together. So it's a very different life now. Sounds like it. And you know, it's <laughs> funny as you're speaking, I'm picturing like, I'm sure you've seen Hell's Kitchen, like the TV show and the reputation for cooking and for being a chef is that it's a very almost hostile work environment. Like people are yelling. Do you disagree with that? I totally disagree with it. I think like, for example, I, I mean, Hemant and I now have worked for 20 something years. We don't curse in the kitchen. There's no cursing. Of course, there's like sometimes we yell when we get upset. There can be some anger that can be there. But if I cannot sit down at the end of the evening with my staff and be able to calmly talk to them and be able to resolve what problems are happening, they're not going to want to work with me. Who wants to live like a like hell in hell? <laughs> Nobody does. Yeah. That's no way to like. I think it's just so. The fact that like a, a Euro male can put that image out, and the fact that it is accepted by the public, and the fact that it's okay, there's something very wrong with that. Mm. You're telling people I am abusive, and you got better be okay with it because this is life. Guess what? But guess what? Then I don't have to work in that space. And that's why people kind of leave. Most of the people that have worked with me have worked with me for a very long time. They keep coming back to work with me because all the work that I'm producing, I would not be able to do if they were not there with me. Yeah. It's interesting because I feel like we've spent more time talking about the people you work with than the food itself. So it seems like <laughs> that, that is, that's a big part of why you cook. It's a big part of why I cook. And I always think anyone that works for me, I want them to want to work with me. Mm. want them to feel that they want to grow as a team with me because as much this company is mine, it's also theirs. Because if I take too much... Look, I, I'm, I think like a lot of the other chefs as well that are across the country or whoever, whichever cuisine they're working with, we're not kind of getting inspired. Like, it's not like in the middle of the night, I go to bed in the morning. I'm like, bang, I have a new idea. It doesn't happen. Mm. We all do our research. We do all do our work. We all do our homework. We all go into each other's books. We go into each other's inspiration. We think about what the other person is cooking or doing in their lives, right? Or, I don't know, we walk down Taj Mahal and we think about what was being cooked in Taj Mahal, right? There's something, if something is coming from somewhere, it's not just like out of air. I just think that not enough chefs talk about where their inspiration is actually coming from besides their moms, which is great. I mean, of course, mothers are amazing, like no pun against mothers, but I think there's a broader picture that kind of influences us. The other chefs that we work with, other chefs' works, magazines, newspapers, I don't know. I even like research YouTubes and I look at like other women's home cook videos. And I think it's so cool how certain women are so good at explaining how to do certain things. And they have a certain technique of doing things, which I wouldn't know. Mm. And so I feel that the same way I feel about my team that comes into work every day. There's there's someone that's from Bombay. There's someone that's from Goa. There's someone that's from the south of India. So like they all have their own strengths and I won't be able to do everything that I do if they were not there with me. And I cook with them. So like I'm cooking while they're cooking, but it's important to have them. Yeah. I think the topic of inspiration is really interesting. 
especially hearing you talk about walking through the Taj Mahal and thinking about what they were cooking. <laughs> like that's, I, you know, I when I cook stuff, I will sometimes just sit there and like, you know, you can kind of guesstimate the flavors of things. So I'll just like <laughs> play with my tongue. But this is like, it, it's it's awesome because I I think when I think of cooking, I think of it as a very sensory like it's what appeals to my tongue but you're drawing inspiration from the environment from history like all these other things yeah like for example one of the inspiration pieces that we did was pressure cooker which was a lot of fun because we could talk about the whole movement in india what pressure cookers have done to india is revolutionary because it allowed women to actually go out to work right think about that idea before that it took so long for women to cook food and let's be real food that's cooked in a pressure cooker versus a food that's cooked in an open pot, totally different flavor profiles. That high pressure heat coming onto an ingredient totally changes or breaks down the way that molecules work versus like a slow sort of steeping of ingredients in it cooking. So I, I'm not going to dwell into that a lot more, but <laughs> I think we, we did this whole series. I'm trying to remember one that I thought was the most interesting. Oh, Anglo-Indian was the one that I was kind of thinking about this idea of this community that exists in India that cooks almost Indian, but it's not Indian at all at the same time. And like till you don't cook it and you actually don't like start reading through their blogs or their books or like you start making phone calls to find this community or the Jewish community. I actually went this year I was in Hawaii and like I met the first Jewish Indian family. I never went <laughs> one did, in India. I didn't know those existed. <laughs> yes. Wow. Yeah. I was just like, and I went for Passover for their dinner, and the food was so amazing. But like, it was very Indian, but it was not Indian at all. Mm. So like, it's a very there's India is just so interesting because of all these mixes. It's like so different between the communities and. Sometimes I even fight with my staff. They'll be, I'll be like, "This is what the, this is how we have to do it." And she'd be like, "No, no, 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 no." My aunt, when we made it like this, like this is how it was done. And then there'd be like a twenty minutes debate, <laughs> and this keeps it really interesting. Now I know why I'm waiting at my table for so long. <laughs> There's probably a debate happening in the back. When Tulsi got its Michelin star, you were actually the creative director at the time. Yes. All the work that you're doing now, especially with Tagmo, it's impacting so many women and so many immigrants in such a positive way. When you think about what you're most proud of, is it the Michelin star and the cooking accomplishments or is it more the community work that you're doing? Oh, the community work. Definitely. Like there's no, I think Michelin stars is amazing. It brings in the people and kind of gives you a recognition that's besides the point like if you kind of look at it it's a very european concept where and i'm going to be shot for this but there's essentially someone that doesn't know too much about indian food comes and tastes my product and says it's amazing or not mm. like i think there's something to be said about authenticity and me knowing the dishes that i'm cooking more than anyone else but so much of it is then dependent on like what their palate is and what they like, right? And then be it becomes a question of who is it that you're serving? Are you serving the mainstream media? Should you cook for yourself or should you cook for your clients? 
Did you always have that attitude? And I'm partly asking because we were talking earlier about how this podcast is up for an award right now. And, you know, I think in the beginning, third-party validation, it's so important to you. It weighs so much. But after a while, you find that it's not that fulfilling. No, it's not. It doesn't really... I think, like, once when Devi got its mission started, it was pretty amazing. I mean, me younger, like when I was in my 20s, when I used to hear about Michelin star, I was like, oh my God, like a Michelin star is such a big deal. And then I had it, we had it at Devi for six years and then we had it at Tulsi for two years. And I don't know if it made, I don't know if you like really, maybe I didn't appreciate it as much as the rest of the company did. I feel like I would much rather have Indians coming to my restaurant because it's so authentic, because the flavors, like someone coming in, my, my mom makes it exactly like this. And like, I'm just feeling so touched and I want to come back and eat with you again. Or for example, like these days when I'm doing these meals, some of the guests would send little notes to me. I have people that send little gifts, like someone sent me a book, someone sent me plants, someone sent me alcoholic beverages <laughs> as a thank you. Like, you know, just, just, I think people just do little things that just kind of touch my heart and like, that's a bigger reward. And also the longevity of an idea or what you're doing. So like, that's why I also didn't want to call it Serbies. I think the company and the brand and whatever it is that you're creating always has to be bigger than you because it's being built not just by you, but everyone. So that, I won't rename. <laughs> well, you know, I was just pondering you if won't I, rename my, my podcast to just, to just my name. I'll leave it as it is. <laughs> I like your name. They like the name of your podcast. You. you know, it's funny. I like it. I came up with the name before I came up with the concept of the podcast <laughs> i literally i was that's pretty cool yeah i was sitting in a chair and just may or may not have been drinking but, <laughs> but we'll say may not because my parents might listen to this that's amazing and how many people have you interviewed so far so you will be episode 22 that's amazing that's a great number <laughs> <laughs> it's very even <laughs> like service suites <laughs> No, I'm going to go into the logical bullshit and say two plus two is four and four is my lucky number. <laughs> uh, you did warn us that you were superstitious earlier. <laughs> About stupid things. No, you it's know. fun. It, it, is, it is fun to uh, look at that stuff sometimes. But I, I wonder, like, as someone that moved here, I think a lot of us might take for granted, like, this concept of the American dream because we kind of grew up here and so for us things like the inequality are very apparent because we had no other benchmark maybe like uh in India so looking at your own career and your life here looking at the the immigrant families you've worked with I'd love your perspective on the American dream and if you think that's still a thing or if you think it's like an overrated concept it's an overrated concept I think like uh I mean, I, I I kind of moved to this country because I, I had this sort of a romantic idea that when I came to the U.S., everyone's going to be really intelligent and everyone's going to be college educated and everyone's going to be really smart and like there's going to be, I don't know, gold on the streets. But this is also 25 years ago and I'm a little bit of a romantic. So like I always had this larger than life visions, right? 
and then when I started working in the US, I realized it was not much different than India, really. Just that you end up working way more hours. You got to do your own laundry. <laughs> you got to cook your own food and wash your own dishes. <laughs> not that I am a supporter of having servants or having them treat them like the way they are treated in some of the families in India. But I think it's overrated, but it provides me the freedom that I wanted. It provides me the peace of mind that if I am queer or if I am trans or if I am brown or if I am whatever my beliefs are, that I can kind of still believe them. And I know that hopefully, shot and quote unquote, in certain situations, if I was African-American, I would be shot dead for no reason or someone would kneel on me and on my neck and kill me. But in the space that I am, I am a little bit safer here. In terms of work, I often tell my father, if I would have worked as hard as I work in America, I would have been the queen in India by now because the number of hours I put in into my work is a lot. And as a parallel comparison, a lot of my peers, my friends from college are financially sometimes doing way better than I am here in the U.S. Yes, the basic lifestyle is better uh, in the sense like for you to have electricity, water, basic medical, being able to maybe afford a car, which actually I just bought a car last year, <laughs> my first time. <laughs> oh, not only that, I learned driving when I was 42 years old. So there you go. <laughs> like, I feel like I felt like I was living in some India village because everyone else had like everything and I was still kind of struggling to get to where I needed to get to. So like, I think like it can be amazing in India. It can be amazing over here if you have money on both continents. Would I choose to be in India in certain ways? Yes. In certain ways, no. Would I choose to be in America? Certain ways, yes. Certain ways, no. <laughs> Sorry, bad answer. <laughs> That's a fine answer. It's, it's an honest answer, which is what I appreciate. So I've got a couple more questions and then I'll ask where we can kind of find you and follow your work. But the first is you've mentioned that more recently you're starting to miss India more and more. How do you retain your Indian culture? How do you hold on to your Indian culture? Oh my God, this is such a... <sighs> I had a fight with a friend a couple of days back he said to me that I deny my country and I deny my religion because I'm not very religious. I'm not the kind of person who sits in front of the temple and prays every day. And I said to him that, well, first of all, today's India is if you are a Hindu, you're Indian or those kind of lines that are being drawn in India right now, which is really makes me very sad because I grew up in a very secular India, in a very free India, or at least I thought so. I mean, there was always rivalry, but I could still kind of have my own mindset. I could still be a person that didn't go to the temple and still be a Hindu. I could still be pretty free in my mindset. At least in media, it seems that that's not the case anymore. It could be wrong about it because I'm not living there, right? Like, I mean, when I go back, I kind of feel it's the same doesn't feel any different 
And then I, I said to my friend that for me, being Indian is building communities because that's what I felt it was all about. It was connecting with whoever it was with you. It's about checking in on each other, making sure that you are taking care of whoever is your next person. It's about connections. So, yeah, I think like that's the way I'm kind of doing it through whoever I have in my life. Because I cook, it just kind of keeps me connected to India no matter what because I've got to like talk to someone there or I've got to research in there. I've got to stay in touch with what's kind of going on. I've noticed regardless of how far removed someone is from India, whether that's like through number of generations or maybe like loss of language, those types of things. The one thing that every diaspora member has retained is a love for Indian food. So so I'm curious if you have any resources or tools or things that you would recommend for home chefs. And it doesn't have to be related to Indian food, but just things that you think are fun that people should check out. I always say, like, if you've never cooked Indian food, just have fun with it. This sort of fear factor that has been put like India Indian food uses so many spices like I think that's one of the reason I actually even do even more homestyle cooking is because it actually doesn't and it can be super simple and it can be super easy I mean you can make one batch of like certain kind of sauce and change it in a few different ways and freeze it and like throw it in your pressure cooker throw it on your pot and like throw the ingredients and make something out of it like it's just it's about having fun if there's any blogs that I can particularly recommend, there's a few. Herbers Kitchen does some really good ones. I think their recipes are pretty good. And then uh, in terms of cookbooks, I love Monica Pede has cookbook. Uh, Floyd has a cookbook that's really good. There is a very simple book if you want to do vegetarian. It's called Lord Krishna's Cuisine by Yamuna Devi. It's an Indian vegetarian cookbook and like she's done, she does a lot of very, very simple recipes, which are like a little bit different. Like I'd never made tahi eggplant, like eggplants in a raita or whatever. And like she teaches you how to make rotis and there's a lot of pictures in the book. So I really enjoy that. I mean, Suvir's cookbook is good. And then there are older books like by Ranjit Kapoor, Kamilia Punjabi. Those are like... Those are basic encyclopedias that you've got to have. Amazing. <laughs> I will link to some of those in the show notes. <laughs> Hopefully people look them up. One of the things I'm curious about now is that I've noticed that people will commonly refer to Mexican food, will refer to Chinese food. I think Indian food is starting to get traction. But if you look at like fast food places, there's not like Indian fast food quite yet. Do you think that reputation of it being complex and taking a lot of spices, like, do you think that's the reason why we don't really see that kind of food quite yet? Could be. It's also like, I don't know if it's become that popular still. You know, we're thinking about Mexican food that's been around for at least, what, 100, little more than 100 years here. Or like for that matter, Chinese food arrived way before Indian food did. In another 25, 40 years, we might be there. But I don't see any sort of chain that's doing some serious sort of work around Indian food. I think like there are people that have tried it. Like Inde is one of the concepts in, in New York that is trying to do some work around it. There's been other sort of companies that are doing it, but I feel like they're still kind of missing the mark in some ways. Or like 
they're trying to be too much like Chipotle and maybe that's not where the hemisphere is. I personally don't want to be in the... At one point, I actually, I, I correct myself. At one point, I did want to be like someone who did like a fast food chain concept and I had started that um, Chipao concept like whatever. Now it seems like forever, 10 years back and it didn't take off. But like in Chipotle, they must have sunk in a few million dollars in that concept, right? For any concept to take off, you need like any sort of a larger company to take that kind of interest to put in that sort of a money into it. My, my Thai concept might take off. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I will take the food that far, but I definitely would want the Mitai, just the Matai concept to kind of take off. My idea is to kind of be the Turkish delights of Indian sweets. Like I was talking about it to someone when I was developing the concept of Tango. I was like, think about like how someone must have introduced Turkish delights to America. And now everybody knows what's a Turkish delight. But I don't think Indian sweets are at that space. So I would want to find those two sweets that every American knows when they walk into their grocery store at one point. And I'd like to be the founder. Wow. That would be nice. I love that vision. <laughs> That would be awesome. <laughs> so I guess the first step would be getting the South Asian folk on board. So, <laughs> so where can we find you and follow your work and find Tagmo? Okay. Our Instagram is Tagmo Treats. Uh, my Instagram is Sani Surbi. Uh, same on Facebook. And we're also on Twitter. Tagmo is on Twitter. I'm not. Uh, but I think those are the three. And then tagmotreats.com is the website, yes. Yeah. Well, thank you for coming on. <laughs> this has been really thank fun. Thank you. This has been really fun. I yeah. had a good time. I had a good time. I look forward to listening to it. Hey, it's Suraj. If you enjoyed today's show, check out the show notes on brownpeoplewenow.com for more content around today's guest. If you want to support the show, share this episode with a friend or follow us on Instagram at BPWK Podcast. Thank you. Talk to you soon.